Welcome to Monster Kids. I'm your host, J. Michael Roddy. I bid you welcome. Now, I love horror. And I love horror stories. All kinds. Whether they take place in the ruins of a castle laboratory, or the fog-enshrouded forest under the full and bright autumn moon, it doesn't matter. A great horror story, especially a film, can entrance you with its characters and settings. Add a little effects magic and some makeup, you have the recipe for a ghoulish delight. But one element that's sometimes overlooked is the amazing musical score for these films. The rich melodies that enhance the creaking of the old dark house, or the haunting motifs that accompany an alien life form making contact with us earthlings. And who can forget the three-note musical appearance of the creature from the Black Lagoon, or the spooky and hypnotic theremin from It Came From Outer Space. Our very special guest today is an expert in the world of monster music. He is Monstrous Movie Music's producer and liner note writer David Schechter. Now, David has spent over two decades writing for a wide variety of projects, including books, magazines, and newspaper articles, before he got into the record business. He's the winner of two Rondo Awards, one for his music producing and the other for his writing. Please welcome Monster Kid David Schechter. Hello there. It is wonderful being here with you. I'm, I'm very excited about this. Oh, we are too. We are too. I uh, I remember first coming across the monstrous movie music CDs. Uh, gosh, I'm going to say early 2000s. Um, probably yes. Yeah, and just I think I reached out to you at that point, and I bought them. I actually still have uh, one of my autographed. Um, glob killed frank uh pieces of sheet music on the wall um tell everybody what you do and and what you're about and why you're a monster kid well i'm a monster kid i think for the reason a lot of other people who grew up when i did were which was um i loved these movies and they were airing i i grew up back in new jersey on the east coast and new york had a lot of uh television stations that saved their monster movies for late at night. So uh, we would all set the alarm for 2.30 in the morning or 4.30 in the morning to catch Kronos or uh, This Island Earth or something like that. And you watch these movies over and over and over. You know, in, in the years before DVDs and videos and all that, you never knew when you were going to catch a second screening of one of these. So every time it showed, you weren't going to miss it. And they became best friends, I think, you know, the monsters, because you saw them so often and uh, they meant a lot to you. There was great escapism, I think. That's wonderful. So do you remember uh, at an early age in, on the East Coast, what was the gateway for you? Do you remember a film or a horror host or a magazine? What was it that you saw that you can remember that was like, oh my gosh, I really love this. I want to know more. What was your introduction into the world of gods and monsters? I would say it was twofold. One was probably finding a copy of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine at the Blue Room, the local store that 
made hamburgers and sold comic books and all that. And seeing photos of these amazing creatures that, you know, I had never seen most of them. That was, that was definitely one of the keys. And it's hard to remember the first one, but my guess is it might've had to do with back on Thanksgiving every year, I forget which station it was, all my friends who grew up there, they would know, they have better memories than me. But on Thanksgiving, they would show King Kong, Son of Kong, and Mighty Joe Young, back to back to back. This was a tradition that went on for years. And you would just sit there and for like six hours, just be immersed in giant gorillas and dinosaurs. And, you know, if that's not going to put you over the top, nothing is. <laughs> um, so I believe it was, I've heard this story a couple of times. There was uh, the Million Dollar Movie. Do you remember that at all? That's right. That's what it was. And what the Million Dollar Movie did was they would show this, whatever film they were showing that week would show pretty much the entire week. And I think it showed maybe two or three times a day. So if you were watching something like, you know, The Beast of Hollow Mountain or uh, Tarantula or something like that, and you got to see the monster, well, you didn't just get to see the monster the few times it was shown in the picture. You got to watch it again and again and again. It was like it was like a drug, you know, addicted to seeing this stuff. But yeah, the mil million dollar movie aired multiple times during the week. Yeah, that story uh, it has been one that comes to a lot in, in our age range. Uh, that that's particular uh, show, the million dollar movie, and the fact that you could see those films over and over and over. And it's funny that you mentioned because King Kong is one that always seems to rise to the surface of you know, a lot of, a lot of young kids that became monster kids saw that at that early age and really it just blew their minds and they wanted to know more. And, uh, and that was it. They were off and running, if you will. Yeah, so it's, it's funny. It, I'm sorry. Uh, it, it seemed, it seemed to have the, you know, it had the same effect on people in the 1930s and on Ray Harryhausen, uh, and on people, 20 years later that it, you know, served as that spark. The Million Dollar Movie, if I recall, was WOR Channel 9. And we also had The Late Show and The Late Late Show on Channel 2 that showed monster movies. We had The Big Show. I think it was like 4.30 or 5 o'clock on ABC Channel 7 and Supernatural Theater, which wasn't supernatural. It, it had, uh, I remember The Forbidden Planet, the scene where the uh, spaceship, creates a man-made eclipse. That was part of the opening uh, segment, like a montage. And that's what was wonderful about all these uh, movies that were showing these pictures is they, they had these montages at the beginning that would show little snippets from various pictures like The Crawling Eye and Forbidden Planet and other things like that. So you would just get one after the other of these amazing images. And that just was just, you know, it didn't get any better than that except maybe for cookies and ice cream. You started out, I understand, as a copywriter. Uh, you did uh, writing for card companies and book publishers, even comedians. Um, tell us how you kind of transitioned your love of monsters into that work and then ultimately how you became one of the premier experts in monstrous movie music. How did the kid who was watching those horror movies, tell us that trajectory? Well, first, I want to say the only reason I'm one of the premier experts is because nobody else wanted the job. So I have that I have that title by default. When I graduated from college, I wanted to be a writer. 
but I wanted to like write for the Tonight Show. I was always a comedian. I was a class clown, and uh, I had a very close personal relationship with the principal because I spent most of my time in his office. When I got my first job, it was writing studio greeting cards for American Greetings in Cleveland. And even when I was writing cards for Ziggy and whatever characters they had there, I had this tremendous love of monsters. So whenever Halloween cards were being written, I was not doing your typical uh, pumpkin gags and uh, ghosts and that kind of stuff, generic things. I was I was making jokes on specific monsters like, you know, Phantom of the Opera, The Invisible Man, things like that. And of course, the greeting card company, they're like... They never, I didn't know anything about licensing back, back then. They would just use the thing without getting permission. They would use photos from these movies. And then when like Universal would write to them and issue them a cease and desist because they had a photo of Bela Lugosi as Dracula, well, then they would cease and desist, but they already sold a million copies of the card. So it was kind of funny, but I was, I was taking every advantage I could to write about monsters even back then, although all my all my promo ideas for actual card lines that had to do with monsters got turned down because, you know, I was still in the minority back then, and that was kind of considered weirdness. But when I uh, moved out to California to hopefully write screenplays, I had met a woman in a film music class because I always had a, a love for film music, and that was Katie Maine. And she was a classical composer uh, trained at the Conservatory of Music and University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. And I loved monster movies. She loved Bing Crosby, road pictures and White Christmas and things like that. But we wanted to work together. So we kind of together came up with this idea of, well, what if um, I kind of got to write and do things related to these monster movies I loved and she could work on the music aspect maybe we could uh, do something that way. So that's kind of how it started, just because I happened to marry somebody who was into music, even though she was into a different type of music. She was a classical composer, but she soon learned to love music for giant scorpions and tarantulas and things like that. So you start reviewing and writing, and then you jumped in the music, but you didn't look back. Then you became a, a producer and a liner note writer for some of these scores that to this day, I, I have to say thank you because the, the recordings are, are gorgeous. And the, you know, any monster kid would be proud to have them on their shelf. Well, it's, it's interesting when, when we were first deciding, should we do this or not? We knew it'd be a tremendously expensive and time consuming, uh, job. We, we went to, I think it was a famous monsters convention or no, it was a universal, horror convention or something in, uh, you know, kind of north of Hollywood there. And we were walking around. It was the first convention either of us had been to. We didn't know what to expect. We had no idea there were so many people wearing skull jewelry. So um, it, it was kind of a shock, especially to my, to my wife, seeing so many people dressed in black, covered with tattoos and with a love of skulls. But we did these little postcards and we started handing them out to people and it asked them if you could have recordings of some of your favorite monster movie scores, what would those titles be? What like what are your five most desired titles? And people started mailing them back to us. And it was funny because I think the only one we got more than one card from was the infamous Bob Burns. <laughs> like wrote in this tiny little handwritten uh, pen, you know, printing about 50 scores that he had to have. 
So that was kind of funny. But what, what we learned was that the scores that I really loved were the scores pretty much that everyone loved. So that kind of opened it up to, okay, let me do what I like, because obviously my taste is very similar to a lot of other people. We're all looking for the same basic stuff. What was the very first one you decided, this is one we have to go after? What what it was, was not so much a particular score, but I was in love with Herman Stein's music. Herman was a staff composer for Universal from 1951 to 1958. And the only reason I knew about him was there was this one recording that was done back in 1959 with Dick Jacobs conducting his 17-piece orchestra in kind of semi-accurate renditions. I won't even say semi-accurate. Let's say, say a pretty inaccurate renditions of some of uh, the music from Universal's 1950s films. And there were four pieces of music by Herman Stein on there, two from uh, This Island Earth, one from It Came From Outer Space, and the main title from Revenge of the Creature. So I started realizing that none of the Universal composers got credit. Only Joe Gershenson, who was the music director, got credited on these movies. So nobody really knew who knew who wrote them but i kind of you know from having that album realized that herman stein's music was really special to me and he had scored a lot of universal's movies so my first goal was to try to find out where herman's music archive might be because apparently he had died uh, i think his obituary had appeared in the 1980s in variety so that was the first thing trying to find out did he have an archive where his music scores had been uh, stored so you're now a treasure hunter looking for these great pieces of music. What's the next step? Well, regarding Herman Stein, it was trying to find out where his archive might be, where some of his music manuscripts had hopefully been saved. Because at that time, I didn't have an in with Universal. Uh, I eventually did have one, and they would let me go to their music library. But at this time, I was just trying to contact the composers. And... I opened up the phone book, that is in days when we had phone books, and looked up the name Stein. And, you know, Hollywood is a very Jewish town, and there were a lot of Steins. And I started making phone call after phone call, leaving messages with most people saying, by any chance, are you any relation to Herman Stein? And then do the next one and the next one. This went on just endlessly. And then one day, maybe it was a few weeks or months later, uh, I'm in my office and all of a sudden uh, my wife, Katie, comes in and her face is completely white. And she says, that dead guy is on the phone. And I, you know, naturally responded with which dead guy, because, you know, it's not every day you get a call from a dead guy and you want to make sure you're not offending them by confusing them with some other dead guy. Well, it turned <laughs> out that the dead guy was Herman. And as he said, you know, the reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. And Her Herman being a hermit, when he found out that he was dead, he didn't really go out of his way to let anyone know because he was happy being dead because he, he had a difficult career in, in Hollywood and um, you know he had a lot of resentment and he kind of decided to hide away. So he did that for about 20 or 30 years until I discovered him and I asked him if he had an archive and he said no, but he had all of the scores at his house and I said, I want to record some of your music from uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. It came from Outer Space, Tarantula, etc. And we kind of went back and forth for a while. And eventually he decided to come visit and see what we were up to. And, you know, he liked what he heard and saw and decided to help us. And he became my best friend for the last 12 years of his life. 
of all of that music, when you when you first met him and you started going through it, did he did he have a favorite? Well, it's interesting because you know, to us, we've seen the movie so many times uh, that the music becomes as important a part of the picture as the special effects or the star or whatever. To Herman, it was just a few days on the job because Universal was scoring by committee where very rarely did Herman or Henry Mancini or Irving Gertz or any of the other composers get to score an entire film by themselves, say 40, 50 minutes of music. Universal would have three or four people, sometimes each writing individual sequences, scenes, etc. So maybe each composer worked on these pictures for a week at the most. So what I always say to people is, do you remember what you were doing 50 years ago, say during the first week of August? No, nobody does. So I remember when I asked Herman um, if he had the music for the Mole People, which has always been one of my favorite Universal movies, and I love the music. He said, did I work on that? And I go, yeah, Herman, you did. Because for him, it was just a few days of work. For me, I saw it probably 50 times. So the, the other thing that happened was when I told him I wanted to do his science fiction and monster scores, he, he said, why do you want to do that? Why don't you do my Westerns? And that's because back then the Westerns were the prestige pictures. They had better stars than Jimmy Stewart and Audie Murphy and people like that. And the sci-fi and horror films were the, the B or C pictures, basically. They were programmers. So I told him, you know, people don't care about westerns these days as much as they do science fiction and monsters and i had a similar problem with a number of other composers like paul dunlap and irving gertz where they all wanted me to do their westerns because in their mind those were the pictures that were important so uh, you decide okay you you talk him into letting him letting you see his scores and you're going to record what's the next step we we had we had been you know saving some money up so you know, that was something we decided to do. It's like, are we going to buy a house or or are we going to record classic monster music? And unfortunately, we decided to go with the classic monster music. But the price for houses was too expensive back then anyway, so we really didn't have a choice there. But the other thing that had happened was we had some friends in the soundtrack business 
and they knew people who worked at the studios. And I remember one time we were visiting the head of the music library at Warner Brothers, Danny Gould, and he let us wander through the music library and look at the scores that they had. And they had things like Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and Them and the Black Scorpion. So that was also part of the thing of seeing that there was a wealth of this music out there, even though nobody had recorded any of it. And after the the situation with Herman, I then contacted other composers in their states and started finding out, yeah, this music was out there. Uh, as you stated, you know, it's the money, which is the big thing. We knew that the music was there. And then the test was to see if my wife Kathleen could reorchestrate it so it would sound like it did in the movie because these were just the sketches uh, that the composers made at the time and then they gave them to the orchestrators at the studio who would flesh them out and write down what every instrument played what the the cellos played what the violins played the flute the oboe etc etc so she had to look at these shorthand scores and figure out all the dynamics and other things so that when you heard it, it didn't kind of sound like something you dimly remember from your youth or from the last time you watched the picture. It immediately put you in the picture. It was such a good duplication of it. So we had a couple of friends in the business who were doing something like this, but on more traditional films, Errol Flynn movies and that kind of stuff, swashbucklers and romances. And uh, Katie showed her reorchestrated scores to them. And she also showed them to Herman and to Irving Gertz and said, what do you think? And they basically said, this is perfect. Go ahead. We, we were still worried because, you know, she had only been playing these samples back as she's creating the scores and parts while orchestrating it. She's playing them back on her synthesizer. And this was 20 years ago. And synthesizers didn't have the sounds that they do today sampled. There, there weren't as accurate sounds. So it sounded pretty synthy. You know, you could tell, yeah, this is it came from outer space, but you still weren't sure it was perfect. We didn't find that out until we went to the actual scoring sessions. And when the conductor waved his baton and the musicians played the right notes, that's when you knew, wow, this is it. And where did you record? Well, the first two albums we recorded in Krakow, Poland, in an old converted movie theater. Uh, we didn't want to go to a standard recording hall where classical music is done, because then you'd get that big echoey sound, you know, that would make it sound unlike film music. It would sound like a Pops concert or something. Since we were doing monster music, we wanted the monsters to be in your living room. So we wanted a dry sound without echo so that when you played it in the speakers, boom, it just hit you. You know, you want the giant tarantula in your den. You don't want them at the end of the block. So we liked the sound of that room because we had uh, listened to recordings and we had the contractor send us Uh, some of recordings that they had done in that venue so we could decide what did we like about the sound, what didn't we like about it, and how we could fix the things we didn't like by mic placement, things like that. Uh, I will never forget the first piece we did. We chose it because it was easy, and we wanted the orchestra to kind of ease into it, because I we didn't think they realized how difficult this music was. You know, a lot of people get that feeling like, oh, film music is like watered-down classical music. No, these were great composers who had the best musicians in the world working for the studios back then, and it was not easy to play some of this stuff. So we wanted an easy piece of music, so we chose Sandrock, which is the second piece of music, and it came from outer space. After the very short main title that Herman Stein wrote, there's this beautiful pastoral piece when you find out about where David and his girlfriend live in Sandrock, 
and you can barely hear it over the sound effects and the narration, mostly narration. But it's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece, mostly strings, a little bit of harp and some woodwinds. And that's the piece we wanted to hear first. And it is such a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of music that when you heard the orchestra play it, it I will never forget that for the rest of my life. You know, if, if that's all we had done, if we had recorded that one piece and everything else was a disaster, it probably still would have been worth it just to hear that music played live, you know, from one of your favorite movies of all time that you never, ever thought anyone would ever record. You must have had a sense of that every time hearing them, you know, recorded, hearing them being played for the first time in, in many cases, 50, almost, you know, uh, 60 years, right? I mean, that's, and, and to be there and then also have the composer give it its blessing. Were there any that you were like, oh my gosh, I can't wait till we get to this piece? I'll tell you what it was. It It ended up being so much work and so... You're so pressed for time because we had a certain amount of days with certain amount of sessions in each two sessions, whatever, three sessions in each day. And the orchestra gets such and such time off for breaks, whatever. So everything is planned out where we had to record whatever it was, you know, 4.3 minutes of music every hour. And as soon as we got under that, panic would set in. And we would have to figure out how to rearrange certain pieces, what shortcuts we could do here or there. So while in the beginning it was fun, it was probably the hardest work either Katie or I ever did. And when you did love something you didn't have time to appreciate it because the moment that piece was done and you knew that every single measure of the piece had been covered correctly, then you had to move on to the next one right away and the next one and the next one. And we did double sessions. So we were there for probably 10 hours. And then when we got back to the hotel, we would listen to the tapes to make sure that we had everything covered. So it was nonstop work for a couple of weeks. Um, when we really enjoyed it was when we got back home and got to listen to the tapes. We had so much that we were looking for because what we did was because we weren't doing melodic music where you can you know sing a pretty melody, it's not that type of movie, it was more atmospheric and it had to be really recognizable to people who love the movie. So when we were deciding what pieces we were going to record, we studied each piece and said, what is it that makes this piece memorable? What are the things that stand out in the picture that will stand out when you hear them and that will take your brain back to the picture? So it might have been something like the oboe and flute come in a half a second apart from each other for a certain effect, or there's a tremendous echo on the timpani, or something very subtle in many cases. And we would write those things down and make sure that when we recorded each piece, 
whoever was playing that instrument knew what they had to do and why. And we were also very, very strict to the tempo, how long a piece should be. What we discovered from playing it back on Katie's synth was if you played a piece, let's say it was a minute and 10 seconds, if you played it, say, down to a minute and six seconds, it would still sound like the piece. But if you went to a minute and five, then all of a sudden it didn't it didn't ring true. And it was even more touch and go in the other direction if you were recording it slower. So maybe you could only go down to like a minute and eight seconds. But when you went to a minute nine, for some reason, you didn't have that recognizability. So our conductor, you know, who had rehearsed and rehearsed with us over and over and over, he knew exactly the window that we had. So a certain piece had to be a certain length. One thing I learned very early was, you know, I had talked to Herman Stein about when he was writing a certain wonderful piece of music, uh, the Interocitor montage for This Island Earth, where they're putting the Interocitor together. And I forget how long the piece is. Let's just say it's 37 seconds. And I said, well, Herman, what if they had cut the scene down and it was 33 seconds now? What would you have done? Would you have taken off the beginning, the end, had it played faster? And Herman said, no, I would have written a completely different piece because that piece was designed to be 38 seconds. So that really kind of triggered in us, okay, we have to be accurate to this stuff because that's how the composers came up with this specific music based on the tempo, the amount of footage that it had to fill in and what the visuals were. So the first one was monstrous movie music, correct? So you had you had them, it came from outer space, mole people, and then it came from beneath the sea. Now, did you just do one of these at a time, or did you know, did you record both monstrous and more monstrous at the same time, or, or was it, okay, we have the first one, now we're going to go back to the mine and do an, another series, and then ultimately follow that up with Creature? What we did was realize that you have this husband and wife basically doing everything up to the point of the conducting and the playing. And if we just put out an album with monster music, you know, it'll it'll be in the news for a couple of minutes and that's it. But if we all of a sudden came up with this concept where we're not just doing an album, we are the monster music people. We are called Monstrous Movie Music. Our first album is called Monstrous Movie Music. We release at the same time as a second album called More Monstrous Movie Music. Now we are this, you know, we're this thing rather than just an album. And that's what we did. We recorded two albums at the same time. And the other thing was because the booklets were so big, they cost yeah. a lot of money, the printing and all that stuff. And basically, when you're doing a print run like that, the second book is pretty much free. So you're paying a ton of money for the first book, but because they're printing it on such big paper, you can get another book in there as well. And you also kind of got a discount by doing uh, double sessions with the orchestra. So had we done separate albums, we would have had two plane trips out there and two hotel stays and everything. This way, we, we just kind of got to bring the expenses down considerably. But it was mainly done just to kind of create a, a bit of an explosion, like, wow, there's this company, and all of a sudden there's two albums, not just one. Tell us a little bit about the creation of the of the liner notes, the books. Those were amazing. Well, being a writer, you know, that was originally going to be my main uh, contribution to the project. It ended up being I was the producer and handled the legal stuff and everything else. But at the time, it was going to be basically writing this since I was a writer. So it was funny because I wrote greeting cards for a long time. You'd write a funny card and it would be 28 words. 
and the writing manager would say, well, that's good. Can you make it 24 words? Because brevity is better in a greeting card. So you do it at 24 words, and then they'd say, can you get it down to 18? So then you'd get it down to 18. And, you know, so everything got edited down, down, down. And I worked for American Greetings for quite a long time. So when all of a sudden I was working for myself and I didn't have an editor telling me to reduce the number of words, I, I think I went a little nuts. So I started writing books that were, you know, 20,000 words, 30,000 words, whatever. Um, part of it was because I I realized that these composers, most people hadn't heard of them. The movies hadn't been written from a, a serious perspective, or at least the music hadn't been written. And I felt this is the only time anyone's going to record this music. This is the only time probably people are going to hear music from some of these composers. So I better do as much as I can so that their reputation is intact. And that, that was really the approach I took. I was friends with many of the composers or their families. And I wanted them to be proud. I wanted them to know what great work they had done. And I wanted to share that with people so they could understand how important the music was. Because so few people who watch these movies even think about the music. I am a huge fan of the theremin. And correct me if I'm wrong, you actually got a real working theremin for It Came From Outer Space. But on top of that, you released the cue without the theremin so that we could hear how the music was originally recorded over 45 years ago. Yeah, well, when you say a real working theremin, let me change that to a real theremin that sometimes worked. And that's the problem with theremins. It's really hard to play them. It's hard to get them to do what they're supposed to do all the time. So when... Universal originally used the theremin on It Came From Outer Space. They knew the problems they were going to have controlling the instrument, getting the pitch right every time. So if they had recorded that with the orchestra, every time the theremin got screwed up, well, the entire recording would be screwed up, and you're paying 36 musicians who are not playing the theremin. So what Universal did very wisely was they recorded the orchestral parts for the pieces that had theremin in it without the theremin. And once they had that locked down, and those were great musicians who could hit the right notes pretty much every time, then they brought in the theremin, had it played, and when they got a good take for each particular segment of music, they would over overlay, overdub the theremin onto that. So we had a similar problem, but not for the same reason. We couldn't find a theremin in Poland. It turned out, I'm glad we couldn't, because it probably would have been really difficult. You know, if Universal couldn't do it properly with the best theremin player in the world, Dr. Samuel Hoffman, I have our doubts we could have. So we recorded the orchestral music, and then we got home, we found the theremin player, and we did the overdubs. Uh, but what was also nice was when you hear the original tapes that Universal did, you can hear the orchestral music without the theremin. And I thought, you know, this is neat. You get to hear all the stuff going on in the background that the theremin obscures. So I thought, yeah, let's do this as a bonus. And it's historically accurate because this stuff is on the tapes that uh, Herman Stein gave me that were done at the Universal scoring session.
so you've released Monstrous and then more Monstrous. What was the reaction back when these were released initially? I know what I felt, but were you surprised? Were you excited? Were you, I mean, you had to just be bursting at the seams knowing that first off, you were responsible for getting this music into the hands of monster kids everywhere to be able to listen to. But what was the feedback you got? Well, the feedback was really amazing. We got some tremendous reviews. I remember, you know, Los Angeles Times did a story on us and um, uh, NPR, National Public Radio, I think it was All Things Considered, did a segment on us. And many newspapers and magazines raved about everything. And, you know, at that time we were, you know, with only two albums, we couldn't find a distributor. So we were placing them in Tower Records and Virgin Record stores by ourselves. But it it was really, really rewarding. Um, you know, there were a couple of bad things that came along, which I think would have helped. Um, I had gotten a phone call uh, from the Grammys after we'd submitted the liner books for and the recordings uh, to the Grammys. And about a week after the Grammy nominations came out, I got a phone call from somebody who was the head of the historical liner notes division of the Grammys. And there are 12 people on that. Uh, committee. And he said, David, you should have won the Grammy for best liner notes. It wasn't close. And I said, what do you mean should have? Well, it turned out there was a clerical error. And six of the people got the CDs with the booklets. And the other six didn't get the CDs for some reason. I have no idea why. I think we sent them like 45 copies, but they got separated. And from what he told me, um, the person, uh, the people who didn't get the CDs thought we were being cheap and they decided to not even nominate us. So the uh, head of the committee said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I write for Mix Magazine, which is the Bible for music uh, editing and recording. And he said, I'll do a real nice spread on you. And he did like a 20 page color spread on Katie and me. And it was really nice. But I'll tell you, I'd rather have the Grammy sitting on my desk right now. The other thing, you know, in terms of bad things, uh, People Magazine wanted to do a big spread on on me and my wife, bringing monster music back from the past. They came out and they photographed us, interviewed us. It was going to be a wonderful article. We were the, the main music story. And we called them up like on a Monday night because people came out on Tuesday. So we called them just to confirm everything's okay. Oh yeah, David, everything's okay. So Katie and I went to the local Ralph's supermarket at like two in the morning, three in the morning to pick up like 50 copies of people magazine. And I had sent press releases all around the world. I was up like all previous few nights doing this stuff. So we picked up 50 of these peoples and took them to the check stand. And, you know, Katie was opening it because she wanted to see our photo in there. We had photos of us with, you know, the uh, creature from the Black Lagoon mask from Bob Burns. He let us borrow it. And the the mutant from this island earth and the mole people had sitting on Katie's grand piano. It was wonderful stuff. So we're flipping through the people and we don't find us in there anywhere. It turned out that Michael Jackson, the day before, had either had a baby or got divorced, and we got bumped as the music story. And it was coming out on Halloween, and they decided, oh, you're a Halloween story, so we're, ne- we're not going to run it. And it was like, oh, God, it was devastating. Because either one of those things would have taken it to a whole different level, at least you know, letting people know we're out there. So there was good and there was bad. The joy was um, getting letters from people, uh, who loved what they did, uh, being interviewed. You know, we had some TV shows that did segments on us, and that was fun. 
you know, but it, it's still a heck of a lot of work. Well, I can speak for Monster Kids. We appreciate you more than you can know. We we love these we love these pieces of music. Being able to have them at our access and just gorgeous, gorgeous recreations. So after more monstrous, then you you follow up with Creature, Mighty Joe Young, This Island Earth, The Blob. I mean, that just it was one hit right after another. I mean, these are all fantastic titles and really important pieces of film music. Yeah, the, the thing, you know, people are always saying, well, when are you going to come out with your next one and your next one? And what they didn't realize is we didn't have a big company like a lot of the others did. And it was just Katie and, and me doing pretty much everything up to the point of recording or, or whatever, in the case of original tracks, you know, getting that stuff. But dealing with all the legalities, finding the music, doing the clearances, music editing, on and on and on. And the main thing was the liner notes. I put so much work into those, and the research on it was really, really difficult because nobody had written about the music for almost any of these pictures before. So I couldn't like, I couldn't go on the internet and search and get some ideas from that. I basically had to find original sources, either people or archives and that kind of stuff. So the research on the liner notes, which I felt was as important as the music in many cases, it took so much time. So, you know, we could have cranked things out if we had put out four-page booklets, but that wasn't what we were doing. You know, that that's the one thing I don't miss, even though I still do the research for books and DVD commentaries. Doing for something where basically you're giving the book away for free, people basically want the music, but I felt that the liner notes should be as well done. It's a, that was a lot of work, and I don't miss that at all. What's uh? I mean, obviously you you've been doing DVD commentaries, which are fantastic. I, you know, it, it's so great now that some of these films are getting that level of commentary because they are. They're film classes. They're film classes in how music works with film. Um, and and your your commentaries also. I mean, they're not they're not sugar coated. You have a very definite opinion. It's it's really truthful and, and really a good way to, to see the process. What would you like to do next? Well, first I will say, wait till you hear my, my commentary on The Land Unknown. I just got to hear it today. I, I did it about two weeks ago, and that's coming out soon on Blu-ray. And in my mind, it's just a pretty dreadful score. It's got a few good pieces. It's got great composers in it, Stein and Raimheld and Salter and a little bit of Mancini, but I'm not a big fan of the movie, and I have a feeling the movie didn't inspire the composers. Tom Weaver did the main commentary for that, and I said, do you mind if I'm kind of hard on the score? He said, no, be honest, and, and I, <laughs> I was honest. So at least he put me at the end of the commentary. So because maybe if people hear it right in the beginning, they just won't even want to watch the movie. But, you know, I think I think if you rave about everything, then you lose credibility there. So and I want people to learn about the music. So if something's good, I want to tell them why I think it's good. And if something's bad, that's equally important because that will help them appreciate the difference between good and bad music. So you moved after after films, you know, I mean, like Creature from the Black Lagoon and Mighty Joe Young and This Island Earth, The Blob, and the, the films that you featured on Monstrous and More Monstrous were pretty high level as far as, as just the quality that was being produced back then. But then there were films, and they're beloved. I mean, I love it. The Terror from Beyond Space is one of my favorite kind of sci-fi films from that time genre. 
but some of these, I mean, like they are not necessarily, you, you put that up with creature and it's like, okay, so was there a conscious effort to go, okay, we've done that. Now let's go to some of the ones that are maybe the lesser known titles or like, what was your selection process? Was it accessibility or did you actually have a, an emotional connection to these films? And you're like, I love this music. I love the imagery. I want to tell this story and, and have it to be, have it be accessible to audiences. Well, it's a great question. Um, generally there was, there was always a personal connection uh, of some kind in why I chose certain things. Like one of my favorite scores, one of my favorite low budget sci-fi movies is The Brain from Planet Aris. You know, everyone seems to love that picture. Well, when I was doing the liner notes, um, for, I, I, I always wanted to, to do that. So I sought out Joyce Meadows, who starred in the film, along with John Agar and Robert Fuller. And Joyce became my best friend. She's still my best friend all these years later. And that kind of, made it even more important for me to do. At the time, I was interviewing her about it, and then it became, no, I definitely got to do this, and I got to do it right. Uh, in other cases, I knew the composers. I knew their estates. I was good friends with Paul Dunlap, so I wanted to do some of his music. I was friends with, with Nicholas Karras. I wanted to do some of his music. In other cases, like with The Intruder, Herman was dying, and he lived a good long life, 93 years. But I know that The Intruder was the most important score he ever did for certain reasons that don't have to go into. And even though he passed away before we were able to get the, the CD out, he got to listen to it. We recorded a classical piece that he had done, which he always loved. And that was really important to him to get that out there. If we had unlimited money, I know exactly what I would have done. You know, I would have done Revenge of the Creature, The Creature Walks Among Us, The Monolith Monsters, Cult of the Cobra, on and on and on, all of those, uh, the, the entire Mole People score. But that just um, wasn't going to happen because the music industry took a hit. Everyone started downloading music for free. And when you're sinking six figures into these recordings and then you 
go to a website and you find out that 25,000 copies of this have been downloaded for free, well, you got to start thinking uh, in terms of not just saving this important music, but saving your own lives and not going broke. Uh, that's the main thing that killed the, the re-recording industry was the fact that people consider music to be worthless. It's free. It's for the taking. Uh, if if I can, you know, get some large amounts of money coming in, I would love to go back and do some more of these scores because there are some really important ones, uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man I want to do. Um, but it's just not financially feasible in today's world where you can just basically steal the music for free. What a commentary on, on where we've gone. I, I mean, again, these all this hard work. Um, if we had come If we had come along... Five years earlier, we probably could have done, you know, 12 different to 12 additional albums. If we had come along three years later, we probably could have only done one. You know, it just you could see the drop off the sales of the first two and the sales of the next three and then the sales of the ones after that. They just, you know, there's this straight line heading down to the X axis there. And music does not have value today, unfortunately. So, you know, we've never had a benefactor. Um, I know a lot of other labels have. It's always, you know, been Katie and me or me alone or whatever. And no, even my dogs, my Scotties have not contributed one penny to any of these projects. And they're supposed to be our mascots. You know, they're, they're credited in the liner books with being our mascots, but they don't do anything other than that. So let me ask you, if you could have... Uh one CD or, or one session to, and be able to release it. What's the one film that's out there that you're like, I know exactly what I would do. I would want to get this out there in this format. I can't, I can't answer that because I think of like five CDs. Um, one thing we, we were going to do a creepy crawly CD and that was going to, I don't, we can only have 80 minutes. I think we could pull it off a creepy crawly CD. Ooh, Monoliths don't creep or crawl. They kind of grow. But but there would be a way around this. Um, I, want, I would love to do the complete mole people. I think it's like 36 minutes or something. It's just such a fun score. And I love The Deadly Mantis by William Lava and uh, Irving Gertz. And when Irving scored The Deadly Mantis, a few months later, he did the monolith monsters, and he basically used his mantis motif in the monolith monsters. So it's kind of like one score he wrote for two pictures. So if I could do the monoliths, the mole people, and uh, the deadly mantis on one CD, that would that would just be wonderful. The, uh, William Lava was such an amazing composer. I'm so sorry we didn't get to him. His score for Cult of the Cobra is absolutely brilliant. He was a terrific writer. And, you know, I'm, that was going to be next on the list, but unfortunately it didn't come to pass. What do you think about film music today? It's different. It doesn't have the melody that, you know, and that's true of really all, all music in a sense, you know, certainly rap, of course, but even pop songs don't seem to have the depth that they did, the subtlety, the complexity that music did in the, in the past, whether we're talking pop music and, you know, some classical music, but film music, it seems to be more about soundscapes. Of course, there are exceptions to the rule and there are great composers. But, you know, in my mind, the, the composers who, who were scoring movies in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and even 60s, they grew up in a different world. They grew up in a world of opera and literature and certainly films and ballet. 
and they had all these different influences that would mingle together and come out as each of as their unique voices. You know, we we have people now who grew up on TV. And that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of really talented people, but it's a different background that they have. And I think it's not as good a background. I think it has limited a lot of people. And and maybe it hasn't limited them so much as it's limited the producers and the directors, maybe. And they want stuff that is simpler and less original and that kind of stuff. I'm not, I don't want to come across like an old, you know, grumpy old man. There are some great scores being done, but for the most part, so many of them seems to be carbon copies of a lot of other things. Can you let our listeners, uh, how they can find your, they should know, but how they can find your, your selection and, and give us, uh, give us your website. You can, you can find us at the website, mmmrecordings.com. That's three M's and then recordings, plural.com. And there are sound samples up there. Uh, if you want to write and tell me about music or movies or anything else or ask any questions, there's a contact page there. You can also write to monstrous at earthlink.net. That's M-O-N-S-T-R-O-U-S. As I said, if you, I love to talk about this stuff. So if you have any questions, uh, if you hate my DVD commentaries and book writing, please let me know. I'm always looking for good advice on how to make my writing better. Um, but I really appreciate you having me on the show and letting me talk at, at length about this stuff. It is it is a real passion. And I'm hoping we will be back doing more stuff because um, I, I love it. I love getting it out there. Uh, you know, we just we need to figure out how to make money to pay for all of these wonderful musicians. They're they're They deserve to get paid, you know. Absolutely. Well, David, it's been a joy. I would love to invite you to come back on the show at a later date, maybe uh, talk a little bit of it more and, and delve into this a little bit more. This has been fantastic, and I'm sure all of our Monster Kids will love it. Thank you for being a Monster Kid, and thank, thank you so much for your contribution to this, this wonderful world. Thank you very, very much. It, it was it was great being on here. I really appreciate uh, you having me on, James Michael. It was a pleasure, and uh, good luck to you in, in your projects as well. I'd like to share a poem that I recently found. The poem is titled Halloween Party, and it's by Ken Nesbitt. We're having a Halloween party at school. I'm dressed up like Dracula. Man, I look cool. I dyed my hair black, and I cut off my bangs. I'm wearing a cape and some fake plastic fangs. I put on some makeup to paint my face white like creatures that only come out in the night. My fingernails, too, are all pointed and red. I look like I'm recently back from the dead. My mom drops me off and I run into school and suddenly feel like the world's biggest fool. The other kids stare like I'm some kind of freak. The Halloween party is not until next week. 
I hope you're enjoying the show. One thing I like to do whenever I'm sitting down to read some of my favorite horror literature or perusing the latest horror news, or listening to some of my monstrous movie music CDs, is to light a candle and set the right mood on a dark and stormy night. And the fine wizards at Theme Park Alchemy have some of the best. Our friends bring some of your favorite smells inspired by their favorite theme park attractions. They have a full selection of scents and more are on the way. In fact, their latest is a selection of Harry Potter inspired scents. So support your favorite house and bring the wizarding world home. And for all you monster kids out there, they have a special offer. Order now and add the code MONSTERKIDS and you'll receive 15% off of orders over $15. So what are you waiting for? Go to www.themeparkalchemy.com I would love to hear from you. Please drop me a line at wearemonsterkids at gmail.com and let me hear what you think of the show. And if you like the show, please, please make sure you like and share with all your fellow monster kids out there. And if you are a monster kid and would like to promote your latest product or story, let me know. I'd love to feature you. Special thanks once again to David Schechter. Selections from today's show included The Intruder by Herman Stein and monstrous movie music including The Mole People and It Came From Outer Space. Make sure you check out his website and purchase some of the best movie monster music at www.mmmrecordings.com. Music for Monster Kids was written and produced by my good friend Michael McCormick. You can learn more about his talents at www.michaelmccormickmusic.com. Our next episode is in production. And until next time, as always, we'll be lurking for you.